Good morning. Um, the scripture I'm reading today from is James 1, 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. <laughs> you can keep that. Thank you, Adrian. Sometimes you want to give a round of applause when someone reads that well, hey? <laughs> if we're going to do it, we're going to do it properly, guys. Well done, Adrian. <laughs> Good morning. How are you all this morning? Great. It's school holidays, and uh, it's hopefully as exciting for you as it is for us. We've got a couple of days leave ahead of us, which is exciting. And um, we carry on on our journey through the book of James. And uh, this morning, we actually carry on looking at trials. I don't have a booklet in front of me, but there is one over here. I'll walk over to, you, to it to show you how simple it is to pick one up. But these booklets are... Um, Sometimes I just need a model, you know, it's that simple. You're going to walk past that. If you don't have one, this is our gift to you, and um, it's going to last us uh, the whole duration of our journey through the book of James. We're going to break it up into five-week uh, sort of portions, and by the end of the year, um, we will have gone through the whole book of James, and you will be able to say that you know James uh, in a deep and hopefully intimate way and uh, that God has done something special in you. It's uh, each week that we preach, so for example, this week's scripture is on the second page. And what we're hoping for is that you actually are a week ahead, so that uh, last week you would have been going through this very passage that we just preached, uh, uh, that we're preaching on today, and you will come with some of your own notes. Maybe half the page is already populated because one of your or two of your morning devotionals, you wrote through and you started to look at it and you started to reflect on what it means. And then you come and you leave the second half of the page ready for whilst you're listening to the preacher to be able to go, okay, I saw that. I didn't see that. Okay, I get that. Oh, I'm not sure I agree with that. And we get to study Scripture together. Um, the Word of God, uh, says the Scriptures, is living. It's active. It's powerful. It's meant to penetrate so deeply. It transcends culture and time. The Scriptures have been translated into more languages than any other book. So when we're studying the Scriptures, you need to understand that this has stood the test of time. There is a Western kind of culture that goes, oh, you know, it's ancient, it's old. Let me tell you, 2,000 years later, the scriptures seem to be enforce, uh, sort of uh, infiltrating and transforming culture like no other book, and it doesn't seem like it's about to stop because God is the author. God is the one who brought the scriptures together using ordinary people, and yet he brought about an extraordinary body of work. This part of the, the scriptures that we're reading is the book of James. Here we are now, uh, after Jesus' uh, life, his death, his resurrection, the church has been filled with the Holy Spirit, and now it is probably about, I imagine, 10 to 15 years after Jesus has ascended, he's poured out his spirit on the church, 
And the early church is predominantly Jewish at the time. It goes without saying that it would have started there. Jesus was a Jewish man, and it was into the Jewish synagogues that uh, originally people started to say, this is heaven and earth's true king. He has arrived in, uh, in, in the Messiah. And slowly but surely, the, Jew, the Jewish people began to realize the gospel wasn't just for them. It was for the world. It was this global transforming uh, message called the gospel. And James was one of the very earliest leaders of this church. And so he writes this letter to the early believers who no doubt are facing all kinds of challenges. They're facing internal challenges as they deal with the reality that now they are Jews with a difference. They have, they've been following the Torah, but now they realize that the Messiah has actually come. And they're being ostracized even within their own communities. Not to mention that if you were in the Roman Empire, there was only one Lord. His name was Caesar. And suddenly you are now a person who's going, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so you've got these external pressures, and then you're into the world of the, the Near East in uh, 2,000 years ago, which was filled with all manner of challenges. There were famines. There were droughts. There were all manner of challenges that came their way. And James, who's this early leader, his heart bleeds for the churches that he's writing to. And he writes to these early churches, and he wants to bring the wisdom of God to these people. It's amazing. Each author seems to have a kind of different feel about them. Um, you, you imagine Peter, if you read the book of Peter. He was the guy who wore his heart on his sleeve, and you can even pick it up in his writing. Um, you read Paul. Paul is an intense thoughtful guy. That's why when you read Paul, you go, what are you talking about? It is so difficult sometimes because he is just so intelligent, so thoughtful, and so intense. And then you've got James, who seems like a kind of modern uh, writer of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs was written many, many years before James existed by, the, by King Solomon. He was a wise guy. And here, many theologians call the book of James like the modern or, or the New Testament version of the Proverbs. There's this sense inside of James that he wants to help people to live wisely. How many of us want to live wisely? Hopefully, many of us. And so we carry on where James has started where most modern authors wouldn't start. If you're writing a letter, you get warm, you warm people up, you make them feel kind of comfortable with you. He goes, count it all joy, brothers, in the first part of his letter, when you face trials of many kinds because those are producing in you maturity. And he starts with this like sucker punch. You should learn to find the joy in the trials that you're facing. And that's what we looked at last week. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You're going to see this interplay because the first part, he talks about he wants to produce steadfastness in you and I. He says, you know, to be mature is to become steadfast. This next passage, if we could go to what we've just read today, he counterbalances it and he says there's another option for your life. It's to become unstable, double-minded. So the first part, he goes, this is what I want for you, steadfastness, stableness, maturity, but you could have this if you want, double-mindedness and instability and a person who just doesn't know their left from their right. They are moved by their emotions. They just don't have any stability in their life. They are not growing in maturity. And James seems to be implying for this first part, this is probably the key thing that he wants us to get as he writes this beginning part is that trials, difficulties in our life, 
are going to prove to be part of what is going to grow you into a steadfast person. I know it's a bummer. It's a tough one. It's, it's not what we want to hear, but James is going, trials are coming your way, whether you like it or not, deal with it. But what you do with them is going to be a radical indicator of who you become. I don't know if you ever uh, saw these studies, these scientists in the States who've got more money than they know what to do with, they've built these things called biodomes. Remember the movie Biodome? Anybody watch that? Now I'm dating myself. There was a movie called Biodome, and these guys got stuck in one. Anyway, those are real things. They built these biodomes to essentially try to study what would happen if you provided the perfect environment for things to grow. So the perfect amount of oxygen, the perfect amount of sunlight, the perfect amount of carbon dioxide. I don't, I'm not a scientist, but everything was perfect. And you just look at this, it's just greenery everywhere. It's remarkable. You've got to see some of the photos of these biodomes. Just imagine, like Amazon, times a million. It's just gorgeous. But what was fascinating about these biodome studies was that when these trees began to grow to a certain height, they would just fall over. And they couldn't work out why their trees just kept on falling over. And they studied and they studied and they studied till they realized there was one missing component in their biodome called wind. There was no wind. And no strain or stress equaled no strength to a tree. Trees only grow if there is wind. It's, it doesn't prove well for the West Coast, right? I don't, I don't know if my theory stands. I think there's a limited amount of wind whereby these trees. But you need a level of stress on a tree produced by the wind so that its roots are forced to begin to cling on, to go deeper. And without that, says the biodome studies, trees fall over. They just don't grow. James is pretty much saying something similar. Without stress in your life, it's unlikely, and I'm not talking about our modern stress as in I'm so busy and I'm checking Instagram all day stress. I'm talking about um, I've, got, I've got weight that's put on my life. I've got strain. I've got stuff that's happening that's growing me up. Anybody heard of Wim Hof? Come on. Nobody heard of Wim Hof? Wim Hof, I saw one or two hands. Wim Hof is the reason that you go to Small Bay and you see people bobbing about in the cold water. He's that guy. Wim Hof is the guy who popularized the theory that actually to put some strain on your body is to grow you up. And it's become like this cult following all over the Western Cape, in fact, all over the world. The one video I watched had something like 16 million views. People are tracking Wim Hof, who is this mega human who basically has been studied again by scientists, trying to work out how, and uh, Jeska, you'd know, he's a strong Dutchman. Sound familiar, Wim Hof. And... Uh, Basically, they're trying to work out, how's this guy so tough? He walks up mountains, he gets up Everest without shoes on and that kind of thing, and he's wearing a vest and kind of, this guy's a freak of nature, and he's created this massive following of people who basically are realizing that to put your body in ice-cold water and float for half an hour is to do you good. James was ahead of Wim Hof. Wim Hof, eat your heart out. You needed to read James. Because James is saying much the same thing. But he realizes that it's not that simple for us to just go, okay, trials are good, and I must just deal with it. I've got to face them. I've got to face them by faith. 
he realizes that there's a bit of a missing component if you're going to really do this well, if you really are going to grow as a follower of Jesus. Because let's be honest, not every trial we go through makes us better. Some of the trials we go through make us bitter, if we're honest. And we look back and we go, that was just pure pain. It wasn't actually that good. I was chatting to a friend who, who was describing a kind of strange envy towards a, a trial that friends of his were going through. So he's a pastor in the city, and he's walking with a couple who've been through real pain. It was unfaithfulness in the marriage, and uh, now they both have this desire to work their marriage out, to, to work out this, this real uh, rift of pain that's come into their marriage. But my buddy who's pastoring them through this has found himself strangely longing for the level of intimacy that this marriage actually are experiencing. It's a fascinating thing, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you watch someone going through a tough time, and because it's so tenderized them, it's so broken them down, that they're just that much more receptive, they're that much more grateful. They, they, they're having conversations, he says, that he wishes he could have in his marriage, but you're only gonna have those conversations when you are pushed to the edge. You're only gonna say those things when the trial really tenderizes you to the point that you find yourself going, we have to talk. It's an amazing thing. And I think some of us need to be reminded that actually we've walked with people and you've watched people heal through pain and you go, I wouldn't mind a bit of that. Here's the thing. It's coming. It's come. And the opportunity for us is to be aware that it is going to come. We are often in it. And the choice now is to go, will we do what James calls us to do today? Because there could be some tenderizing opportunities to, to, to find gratitude, to find faith, to find fresh ability to, to love and be loved. Because so often trials tenderize. And when we're tenderized, we're moved to become more like Jesus. And that is the goal that we have. You with me? So what does James say? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. There's this realization in James. He goes, okay, I've asked a hard thing of them to count a joy when they go through trials. So how are they going to do this? Oh, they're going to need wisdom. And wisdom is this, this key theme throughout the book of James. And now he realizes you need wisdom. It isn't as simple as just going, trials are happening, hooray, let's maximize this. Each different situation will require a different kind of response. So the, I suppose the question to ask is, well, what is wisdom? To Tim Keller, he says, wisdom is knowing the right thing to do in the 80% of life situations in which moral rules simply don't provide clear answers. That's often life, right? There's a, there's a manual for some things. You know, you, you know basically what to do. The Bible tells you. But 80% of life situations are complicated. And there is another party or an, a few other parties involved that just make this whole thing seem, oh, if I do that, it's going to hurt them. If I do that, it's going to annoy her. If I do that, it's going to let this person down. Oh, my gosh, what do I do? God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom. And so James says, you're going to have so many moments like this. And there is a God who wants to give you wisdom. Douglas Moo says, wisdom is the means by which the godly can both discern and carry out the will of God. And James wants you and I to get wisdom. 
I love the book of Proverbs. He, he's alluding to Proverbs the whole time. And he's saying, this is where I'm drawing some of my content from. This is what's inspired me. And Proverbs is made up of these, this writer, King Solomon. And it's made up of four characters, essentially, that really he, he writes about. First, you've got this wise sage who writes to his son, basically for the first seven chapters approximately. And he writes to his son and he says, my son. And he, and he tells his son good things to do, bad things to do, how he should live. And then he's got, uh, then in, in verse uh, chapter 8, you've got Lady Wisdom, and I'm going to talk, uh, quote some of her quotes. Then in the next uh, rest of the, the sort of book of Proverbs, you've got these two other sort of wicked characters. You've got this seductress lady who's trying to tempt the son into all kinds of unwise and, and silly behavior. And then you've got this wicked man who is simply just called uh, Mr. Folly. It's just all about how to live in a way that is completely unwise. The last two characters are about disorder and chaos and how you can bring death about in your life. And the first two characters are about how to bring wisdom and, and, and flourishing into society. Lady Wisdom is basically the personification. Remember that word from English in high school? Personification of wisdom. She is wisdom. In verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? She stands at the crossroads and she says, Come, I've got wisdom for you. Verse 11 of chapter 8 of, of the Proverbs says, For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. He's going, James is going, I want you to have this, and I want you to understand this beautiful gift of wisdom that is worth more than the salary at the end of the month. It is so precious. Verse 19, she speaks of her wisdom. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. What's the nicest thing you own? She says, wisdom is better than the coolest thing you've got. It is more precious. It is more special. She carries on. For those who find me, this is wisdom, find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves and all who hate me love death. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to find life? Well, this is not a case of just going, I'm going to do my best and, you know, at the end, if I've made a mistake, ask for forgiveness. This is one of the most annoying verses if you're the kind of person who likes to go, you know, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission because the scriptures go, no, it's not actually. It's not easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. It's easier to ask for wisdom than permission. Ask God to help you. I love this passage. If we go back to James that we're looking at, it says, let him ask. But firstly, he says, God who gives generously to all without reproach. It makes me think of God. He's almost leaning in a, in a generous manner going, what do you need? I've got it. What wisdom do you need? I have it. Is there anything in your life that you're lacking by way of wisdom? I would love to give it to you. 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, I think it is, says this. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, looking for hearts that he can strengthen. It's this wonderful sense. I mean, you think of uh, the Lord of the Rings, that horrible eye that ranges throughout the earth. This is a different. These are warm eyes of love that are scanning the horizon going, are there any followers of Jesus that I can find? I am crazy about wanting to give them wisdom. I want to give it to you. I have uh, abounding resources. It doesn't matter if the whole church have asked for wisdom. One more person asks, I've got more. I'll keep giving it. He gives generously without 
reproach. He's not like the captain on the school field who lines them up and he chooses the best ones. We all know that feeling, right? And you're going, okay, you, you, and the two captains are choosing, and then it's odd numbers and you realize you're not in the team. Ah, terrible feeling. This is not the God we're looking at. This is the God who's going, all of you, you're in. If you need wisdom, I have more supply than you can imagine. Come to me and ask for it. It is my joy and my delight to give you wisdom. It pushes back on any victim mentality that you or I might have. I just didn't know what to do. I just didn't know what to do. It's a pity, but there is no longer that out. There is this opportunity for us to draw on God who graciously, generously, without reproach. You go, but I have done so many dumb things in my life. There is a lot of reasons why God wouldn't give me wisdom. There's a lot of reasons why God shouldn't give me anything. Let's go back a few weeks. Remember how Terry reminded us of the grace of God. Jesus doesn't, uh, God doesn't give you wisdom based on how well you've been doing over the last while. He gives you wisdom based on how well Jesus did on your behalf. There's no reproach because Jesus took the reproach upon himself. So if you're lacking wisdom and you're going, I don't know where to go, you go to Jesus and you hide in him and you say, Father, give me wisdom. And he looks on you as if he's looking on the son whom he loves and he says, here you go. I've got it all. What do you need? And then we're going to realize that he gives it in many and varied ways. He gives it in many and varied ways. But like every good passage of Scripture, there is a big but. And who likes big buts? This reminds me a bit of a song. And I cannot lie. But let him ask in faith. Let him ask in faith. He looks at us, he goes, God is generous. He is mad about giving you wisdom. He's waiting. There's bucket loads. They are about to be poured upon you in generous portions. But let him ask in faith. You, if you want wisdom, you need to ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, this concept of doubting is quite important because I think when we think doubting as Western uh, scientific brains, we think doubting is, is he real or isn't he? Which is not a, a wrong question to ask. It's absolutely fine if you ask the question, does God exist or not? But that's not primarily James's paradigm here. He lived in a world where he took, everyone took for granted there was a transcendent God. The question of doubt was what was he like? How did he behave? Who exactly was he in his nature? And this is what James is trying to do here. He doesn't mind, and if you're new to the faith and checking things out and you're still unsure if God is who he says he is, stick with us. Really want to encourage you on this journey. This, this is a, hopefully a safe place. In fact, uh, James is one of the people that has most inspired uh, many people to come to faith in, in, in Jesus. In fact, a friend of ours, uh, Bob, he came to faith in Jesus many years ago because he studied the apostles' lives. And he looked at them and he went, how could it be that James and others who looked at the life of Jesus when he was alive said, we don't trust you. We don't believe you. And slowly but surely, as they witnessed his life, his death, his resurrection, the very doubters who said, we, can't, we don't know if we can trust you, were the very ones who ended up going to their deaths 
believing that he was the very son of God. And, and maybe if you are new to faith, I'd love to encourage you that James himself looked, he was the brother of Jesus, and he looked at Jesus and he went, I don't believe you, says John chapter 7. Not sure I trust all these claims about being the Messiah. But something happened in the life of James to the point that now he is writing a letter as the leader of the church who is a biological brother, and yet he goes, he is my Lord and my God. Caesar's not Lord, my brother who I grew up with, he is the one who was born of a virgin, my mother Mary, and he is now heaven and earth's true king, and I trust him. Hey, if you're new to faith, go study. How did these lives get so radically transformed? But James isn't looking at this kind of doubt. He's looking at the kind of doubt that says, who is God? What is he like? Does he really give without reproach? Is he really kind? Does he really want to give me wisdom? Can I trust him if he does give me wisdom? 18 months into serving Jesus, maybe even less, I would imagine it was probably trying to work it out. I tried to work it out. Maybe call it six to 12 months. I've been following Jesus. And like often happens to a person who starts following Jesus, some amazing distraction will come your way to try to take you off your primary and newfound love in Jesus. In my case, it was a girl. She arrives into my life, and I haven't been liked by a girl ever. Wow, this is amazing. And uh, we start building a friendship, and we start this kind of dating relationship. But as a follower of Jesus, I know she's not a follower of Jesus. And all the sort of background noises are starting to get a little louder. I'm going, I don't know if this is a good idea. I really like being liked. Are we really having fun? She's pretty. This is cool, but I don't know what to do. I remember driving along Duval Drive, literally coming down. I lived in, in Frederick. As I'm coming around, and I'm going, God, you know that scary thing, like you, are, you don't want to ask because you don't want the answer. But I go, God, I don't know if this is a good idea. What should I do? I remember this like strange whisper. Now, I don't know exactly perfectly how to hear God, but it felt like I heard something in my mind that went, you can, but it's not a good idea. It was so gentle. It was so kind. But it was this sense of, you, you can date her, but it's probably not going to head where you hope it will. There, there, there isn't a real future. It's heading towards some kind of end where you're going to end it, she's going to end it, or some circumstance is going to end it for you, and it's probably going to be painful because you're not on the same path. And as fun as it may be, it's not wise. So I ignored him. <laughs> For a while, until circumstances forced me to realize he was right. But the wisdom of God comes to us and it says, do you doubt? Because if I didn't doubt, I would have been able to save myself a good few months of pain. If I could have gone, oh my gosh, I can, but it's not a good idea. I should have hopped on that one and gone, my very kind Father in heaven is going, I can, but it's not a good idea. And if it's not a good idea, then I need to find a way to graciously and gently get myself out of this situation because it's ultimately going to bring me and others pain, which it shouldn't. And if I had done that, I promise I could tell you the rest of the story another day, could have saved myself and many others a lot of pain. But I didn't. And, and when uh, James is writing here, he's talking about a kind of doubt that, that is, is, is this doubt that says, can I trust that when he gives me this wisdom... I know that it's good, that he actually has my best at heart. Otherwise, 
I will become a double-minded person, unstable in all my ways, like a, a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Nobody likes that. Nobody wants to be unstable. But here's what happens. Let's go back to that situation. You find yourself going, should I be with her? Shouldn't I? Is this a good idea? Isn't it? And something in your heart is going, I would like it, but I don't want it. And you spend your life bargaining with all these different situations, hoping that you can persuade God ultimately that it is a good idea. And what ends up happening is you live in the messy middle, unstable like a wave of the ocean. Anyone been to Big Bay lately and you go to the, the middle and you look straight out at the island and there's that lovely island filled with lots of bird poo and you look at it and on the high tide, the waves come around and then suddenly they meet in the middle and they just start crashing. It's like these beautiful A-frame peaks and you think it's the calmest place to be until you take your little three-year-old out there and it's small but suddenly these peaks meet each other and it's just wild. The waves toss these little kids around and... That's what we can be like if we find ourselves doubting every time we go to God and ask him for wisdom. To the point that James says, you know what, you're crazy. You shouldn't even be expecting much from God. That's not because he isn't leaning towards you. That's not because heaven doesn't want to give you wisdom. It's because if you keep bargaining and you take bits of God's wisdom and then you trust in yourself at other times, you end up not sure whose wisdom is actually winning. And then you go, I don't even know whether I'm trusting God or self. The happiest people, the deepest soul-happy people are the ones who are fully entrusted into the hands of God, who let as much of their lives be led by God. I'm going to bring up a contentious topic now because James does it, actually, and it's the topic of immigration. Who likes talking about that? Woohoo! Immigration, James chapter 4, verse 13, James actually says the same thing. I mean, I think about it often because, uh, you know, we're always walking with people and South Africa is an interesting place to be. And I don't actually, from the outset, want to say no or yes, like it's right or wrong. There's lots of circumstances where immigration, good, go for it. However, James seems to think it's a good topic to talk about receiving God's wisdom. Because when I, as a pastor, sit with people and they talk about their next move. Very, 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 very rarely, atomic rare, tiny rare, do people come saying, you know what? We're thinking of making this move, but we're actually just waiting on God for some wisdom, and we're trusting God will use some of the wisdom of this community to help us make this decision. 99% of the time, and it's a good example, people have found themselves They'll come and they go, we're thinking about this. But you know what we're thinking about this really means? The horse has bolted. You know what church you're going to attend when you arrive. Your passport is already stamped. And you're basically just waiting for your tickets to arrive. That is a kind of sense of what James is trying to say here. He's going, if you want God's wisdom, don't keep rushing into your plan and then saying, God, hey, do you think this was wise? Do you think you could bless this? He goes, you're, you're crazy. You shouldn't suppose that you'll receive anything. The wisdom of God is to say, God, before I go, before I make a big decision, before I start this relationship, before I consider buying the ring, before I want to ask you, God, is this wise? 
Are you in this? Am I missing anything? And then to actually add a couple of components, for example, hey, some godly people, can I ask you for some perspective? This is not permission seeking. This is not about a church kind of going, you need to ask permission every time you do something. And by the way, this is not about asking elders if you should do something. This is about finding loving people in your life who know the will of God, who who living well in God's love, who you can go to and say, hey, we haven't made any decisions. But we just want to present this because we feel like, or I feel like, this might be something God may be in. What do you think? And you humbly lay before the people, the person, what you're dreaming about, and you feel vulnerable because they might go, you're crazy. You're self-centered. You're only thinking about yourself. You've got no interest in the plans of God. 99% of the time, people go, I get you. Wow, I'd love to pray with you about that. Most times people are so gentle and gracious because you've chosen people who are gentle and gracious and who love God. And you bring your your plans to, to people. Why? Because sometimes you can't always discern the voice of God. You can't always just hear straight. Even if I had, you know, on, uh, on Deval Drive heard straight, I would have been really wise in the early days to have gone, hey, dude, I'm in this relationship. What do you think? But I really skillfully played the chess pieces to make sure I never got that conversation and never got asked that question because I know any God-fearing person who liked me would have said, dude, you're wasting your time and you're going to hurt yourself. It would have been straight and simple. But we know how we can just keep the right people at the right distances so that we can keep, basically, God's wisdom at arm's length. And James says, be very careful of that. Be very careful of that. The biggest loser will be you. The biggest loser will be you. That person should not suppose that he will receive anything. If you're emigrating, we love you. Really, and it's not a wrong thing. I'm not trying to say that. What I am trying to say is that we need to ask God to grow us as a people of wisdom. And it's not the kind of wisdom that you sit on the chair and younger people come and ask you, how should I do my life? It's the kind of wisdom that is on the road. It's messy. It's complicated. And you find yourself going, we're in the middle of some stuff. And we don't want to move ahead until we get some wisdom from God. I pick up the phone more often than you think to a lot of the guys who are sitting in the front row on our eldership team and go, guys, I'm trying to make a decision. Guys, I'm facing some difficult stuff. Pray with me. Help me. I need to make some calls. This is not because it's a leadership team. It's because I need friends who I can reference when I'm feeling tempted or tried or in difficult situations. That's why we've got life groups. That's why we expect us to build the kind of relationships where we can pick up the phone. But that's part of wisdom is to be able to go, who have I got? Who am I building with? What kind of people know me so that I can actually say, dudes, dudettes, this is a tricky one. I haven't made a call yet. And something about making good big decisions up front, knowing where you've set your values, knowing what you've already decided in God is so profound. I may have shared this story before, but it's an an old story that really strikes me about wisdom. Linda Johnson, a friend of ours in in India, they planted a church many, many years ago, and she was working as a PA, assistant for a doctor, and she gets a phone call, and uh, the person says, can I please speak to Dr. So-and-so? So So she walks into the doctor's office, and she says, "Um, Dr., so-and-so is on the phone for you. Can I put her through? And the doctor goes, Just tell her I'm not here. So Linda goes back to the phone and she goes, 
I'll put you through now. And she puts her through, <laughs> puts the person through. He has the call, and he comes out, and he says, Linda, I told you to say that I wasn't here. And I don't know how this whole thing happened, but I get the feeling she put her shoulders back, and she said something, and, and, and this was the wisdom. She said, if I lie to that person, how do you know that you can never trust me again? She made a big decision up front that she will always tell the truth. It might have cost her a job, but actually it probably built trust that made her way more employable than she could ever imagine. She had situational wisdom when she was in a trial that made her force herself into a difficult place, but she moved by faith. She went, I might lose my job. This guy's going to be cross with me, but I'm choosing faith. I'm not doubting in God's goodness. If he's called me to be a person of truth, I will be a person of truth. And she holds on. Wisdom is a beautiful journey. It's something that we can keep praying for. It's something that we should keep asking God for. And I hope that today you find yourself just simply going, God, may I become a person of wisdom. Love Solomon's prayer. He gets offered everything from God and he says, God, give me wisdom. What it would look like if you and I began to build a community of people who are saying, you know what? I'm not isolating my life. I'm not living my life in a way that keeps God and others away from me learning some of the greatest lessons I can. I think of parenting. How many of us are in parenting bubbles where we're trying our best to raise kids, but there's not enough people who watch us and actually know how we do or don't discipline our kids? And actually to let some people and go, how are you disciplining your kids? How are you helping them to grow up in the ways of God? How are you helping them through tantrums? How are you? And we love books and we love reading and great, good for that. But there's nothing like life on life, teaching one another, learning from others who've been through it, asking those who've gone ahead of us and being humble enough to realize maybe sometimes we're wrong. Wisdom is the willingness to sometimes go, I don't know. But God does, and he may provide some people who do. So today, we're ending the journey that says it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. Because wisdom says God will give us what we need so that we don't need to land there. Do you know what's lovely? Is we will make mistakes. And God will still move towards us without reproach. Part of the journey of wisdom is to say, God, I've made mistakes. Forgive me in your son, Jesus Christ. I still need wisdom. The ongoing journey of growing in wisdom is to find yourself repeatedly saying, God, I need you. We're going to find wisdom in community. We're going to find wisdom in Jesus himself. Many theologians argue that uh, Proverbs chapter 8, this lady wisdom is ultimately personified in Jesus, is fulfilled. He is the personification of wisdom. You want to know how to be wise? Look nowhere else but to Jesus. Many times Jesus says, I have come. And he is the picture of what it means to be wisdom, to be wise. If ever you're lacking wisdom, turn to him in prayer, but also turn to him in the scriptures and ask, what did you do in these situations? How did you live? Come to the body of Christ, the church, and keep asking the question. Come to him in prayer and say, God, give me wisdom. 
and he promises to give it generously and abundantly. Let's stand. If the band can come lead us in a time of prayer. And I think my main call this morning is not just to ask for wisdom, but to ask for humility to trust God when you do receive his wisdom. Sometimes that's a lot harder, right? It's easy to go, yeah, I want to be wise. It's hard to go through the school of hard knocks when you realize you weren't wise or you did actually choose to go your own route. So Father, this morning we come to you as a group of people who, who aren't always wise, who don't always have it together, but today realize that we need wisdom often and that we find ourselves in a place where wisdom is available to us, not just in tiny measure, but in great abundance. You give generously. And so it's to the generous God who did not spare his one and only son that we come. And we ask you for wisdom. We ask you for wisdom and courage because so often to live out your wisdom requires courage, which I suppose is another word for faith, God. Another way of saying we're gonna trust your kindness and your goodness despite the fact that it's easier sometimes to trust ourselves. Just reminded that God's wisdom is not, not like that Greek sense of you, you go to someone who dispenses better ways. It's a loving father who is the better one that we want to be with. Lord, this morning, we don't want to turn wisdom into something that some have and some don't. We all have wisdom because we have you, Jesus. We all have wisdom because we have access to you. Maybe today you need to not just come back to a life of wisdom. You need to come back to wisdom himself, Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to put up your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do anything except pray a prayer and under your breath. Because God hears your heart, he hears your prayers, and he sees your faith. And in that prayer, I want to encourage you to come to Jesus, to, to come to him to say, God, I have made many mistakes. I've turned my back on you. I've chosen my own wisdom more often than I should have. And today, I receive your grace and your forgiveness. And I come to you thankful that, Jesus, you took my reproach upon yourself. And instead of that, you give me your love and your presence. Today, I receive your love. And along with your love, I receive your wisdom. And I commit myself freshly in humility to moving a little slower as I trust myself into your hands. Jesus, give us wisdom. Help us to live in a way that pleases you. In the multiple places of life where we don't have a clear manual that gives all the answers, we pray that we'd be a wise people trust you and trust your goodness. In Jesus' name.
Let's sing.